0: Mindfulness Mode 442. I have struggled for years with the question of what spiritual might mean.
1: Welcome back to Mindfulness Mode. This is Bruce, Bruce Lankford, your host and mindfulness life coach. Great to have you with you. Great to have you with us. I'd like to offer you a way to release Any feelings of overwhelm that you might be experiencing, I have a guided meditation and this meditation can help you to work through these frustrations, to let go of some of these blocks and and to surrender your stress. You can get this 30-minute guided meditation. It is $4.99. Get it right away at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash release. Now today's episode I'm talking with a scientist and when I first started my podcast I I had this dream of interviewing lots of different scientists about the topic of meditation about mindfulness about different aspects and today we talk about enlightenment we talk about consciousness we have expert Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin on the show. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode with Dr. Martin. Hey, Mindful Tribe, you're in for a treat today because we have a fantastic social scientist with us who is going to talk about some interesting, life-changing things that he's working on. I've got Dr. Jeffrey Martin here. Dr. Martin, are you in mindfulness mode today? I sure am. I always am, frankly. That's great. Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin is a social scientist who researches personal transformation and states of human well-being. He actually spent the last 10 years conducting the largest international study on persistent non-symbolic experience, which is PNSE. You may have seen that shortened to PNSE. It's, it includes a type of consciousness Commonly known as enlightenment, non-duality, the peace that passeth understanding, intuitive experience, and hundreds of others. More recently, he's used his research to make systems available to help people obtain profound psychological benefits in a rapid, secular, reliable, and safe way. So this is the kind of thing a lot of people are fascinated with. But first, what does mindfulness mean to you? How would you define it, Dr. Martin?
0: That's a good question. You know, it's such a muddled term in the academic world, which is, you know, has been for the last 12 years or so, probably my primary home base. And people have just debated it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So I you know I think it's a good question what it means in the public, I think there's this general sense that it just sort of means paying more attention to the present moment or you know something like that. but of course, academics need to define operational definitions for research, and so it's just a war zone <laughs> in terms of what it means from a scientific perspective. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when we first started to research people that earned so-called higher levels of consciousness, I thought, you know, well, some of these mindfulness measures are going to be, you know, relevant. I mean, mindfulness, for the most part, if you think about like John Kabat-Zinn's work and others, mindfulness pretty much comes out of the Buddhist side of things. And so one would expect, given that, that mindfulness would be associated with these sort of highest forms of human well-being and that the measures associated with that would be you know, along those lines as well from an academic standpoint. I mean, you would just think that that's what they would sort of be measuring. Um, but we found that that was really the exact opposite. None of those measures really have much of anything to do with the type of thing that we research with sort of these higher levels of human consciousness. In fact, um, you know, it's, I guess that's really not surprising because you know, most of the researchers who are interested in that space come from positive psychology. And positive psychology asks more about, you know, how you make your ego happy than how you get beyond it. And so, you know, you have all these measures that sort of deal with these various angles on your ego being more present. You know, sort of you're, you're always going to be suffering in some way self being more in the present moment versus your self that has sort of gone beyond a lot of those forms of psychological suffering. Um, being analyzed by those measures. So I think mindfulness is, is it's a pretty muddled term. I, I think, fortunately, it's generically understood by the public, but I have to say, from a scientific standpoint, there's still just nothing but argument and debate about you know, how to define that term and all of that. And you have people like John staying away, really, from his Buddhist roots. You know, I, I think there's sort of this really strong effort in the academic world, to divorce mindfulness from the Buddhist ideas and stuff that it came from, and and it's it's all kind of interesting.
1: Well, it is interesting, and I know that you talk about consciousness. How would you define consciousness?
0: I define consciousness pretty simply, and that is that you know right now you're consciously aware, um, and so you know that's the simplest interface that someone has to consciousness. It's simply. You know, your awareness um, that you have. Now, there are also, of course, you know, many, many, many unconscious processes happening in the brain. And so you have to take sort of a much wider view, if you will, of consciousness. It's both the conscious processes that you're aware of in this moment that are giving you the subjectivity to interface with me, see me, you know, think about whatever it is that you're thinking about and all of that. But The vast majority, of course, of our consciousness is really unconscious and unconscious processes and all sorts of competition among various neural processes and stuff to fight its way to the surface to reach subjectivity, if that's important, or to be used in other ways, frankly, by the body and the body's system.
1: So do you believe consciousness ends the moment I die? I don't know. Uh, I think there's
0: all sorts of conflicting evidence on that. Um, I think anybody that claims to know that, you know, has adopted a certain epistemological perspective based on their own evaluation um, of that evidence. I have many, you know, I know pretty much everybody in the consciousness research space across near-death experiences and reincarnation stuff and, you name it. And so, you know, we speak at a lot of the same events. So I've seen their presentations many times. I could probably give their presentations. They could probably give my presentations at this point, right? That's sort of the way it goes. I feel like I'm very familiar with a lot of the different directions of evidence around this, the mediumship stuff, you know, the parapsychology stuff. And I haven't seen anything that I thought was, you know, utterly conclusive. There's a lot of very interesting stuff. There's a lot of very suggestive stuff. But, you know, kind of if you put those people in the room with some really good quantum physicists, um, they can kind of call a lot of that stuff into question. And I think it's really anybody's best guess at this point, frankly.
1: So let's talk about spiritualism. Do you see yourself as a spiritual being? Well, how do you define Spiritual. Well, that's what I was going to ask you.
0: (laughs) I think that's really tough. I have struggled for years with the question of what spiritual might mean, because people love to throw that word around. And of course, I have many, many friends that consider themselves sort of in the spiritual marketplace or that write, quote unquote, spiritual books or whatever else. And I have a lot of difficulty really sort of, I mean, unless someone is talking about God or, you know, angels, or, you know, whatever else. I mean, those things, I think, are sort of clearly classically within the word uh, spiritual or religious. Um, but most people that are in this place, in this sort of market space, if you will, uh, that are producing materials and whatnot, they're not really talking that much about God and, and angels and demons and all of that. Now, that's sort of more the religious marketplace. The spiritual marketplace uh, in recent years, I think, is getting harder to you know, it's getting harder to tell the difference between that and some of these areas of science. And I do think they're areas of science. And I think parapsychology is an is a legitimate area of science to investigate. There's a lot of interesting evidence. There's a lot of problems, I think, with that evidence. It seems like the more trials you accumulate, sort of the more tendency it is to go towards randomness, even if you start with a very significant finding and there's some, you know, interesting statistical things that are done in that space that may not be done in other spaces and stuff like that. But I think, you know, I think it's, for me, it's hard to see where these things like positive psychology end and spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual begins. Like you could say, well, psychic premonitions are spiritual. I mean, but are they? I mean, if they're able to be detected and if somebody like Dean Radin's work or you know, somebody who's really, really working on that type of stuff, or if you think about Rustarg Targ and um, all of that stuff at SRI years ago, or the robot viewing people, or whoever else, I mean, if some of that really is nailed down just airtight from a scientific perspective, I remember having dinner one time with um, quite a well known uh, physicist named uh, Henry Stapp, and I said, You know, Henry, just out of curiosity, if you know, some of these things are really, really proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to you empirically, you know, what will that mean to you in relation to your understanding of quantum physics? He's one of the world's great quantum physicists. And Henry was like, well, you know, if there's physical evidence for it, then, you know, we'll simply reinterpret our understanding of quantum physics to take into account that new physical evidence. He's like, I can totally see ways to do that if there's justification for it. And so I think, it, you know, at that point, is it spiritual? Is it physics? Is everything spiritual, including physics? I mean, it's, it's, you know, these words, I think um, it's just tricky.
1: Yeah, it is tricky. I really enjoyed your talk, Neuromodulation for Higher States of Consciousness on YouTube. It was really fascinating. And you're saying, well, it's finally here. It's finally here. We've arrived. We can do this. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners, what you're talking about there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in our own work, basically, we've been looking into these so-called higher states of consciousness, higher levels of consciousness, not states, persistent forms of it. I'm not an expert in temporary forms of peak experience and stuff like that. I'm only an expert in persistent forms of these things uh, for a dozen years or so. And Uh, I'd say probably around 2009 to 2011, we were doing a lot of work with different scientists around the world that were measuring people with things like fMRI or MEG, these sort of brain measurement uh, technologies that helped us to really understand what was happening in the brains of these people, that there was some network rewiring that was going on and you know, sort of leading to fundamental changes in brain activation in different regions and stuff like that. The problem is that all of those were very deep in the brain for the most part. And they were very, very hard to get at with brain stimulation methods and even, frankly, with neurofeedback methods. Uh, if you had a real time fMRI machine, you know, real time feedback based fMRI machine, you could get at those. But back then, there, were only, there weren't many, that many of those in the world. There no. still aren't that many of those in the world. And they're pretty jammed up, you know, in terms of their schedules with researchers and major universities. Um, and so even if you could just pry out, you know, 50 grand of your own money to go use one of those things to, to change your brain activity, to bias it in the direction of these higher levels of consciousness, it'd be pretty hard to get time on those machines. So it just wasn't a lot of practical technology that was, that was able to get at those regions. The brain stimulation methods at the time were basically um, you know, much more primitive. They were, uh, they were able to affect the cortical surface, the outer surface of the brain, quite easily. Uh, but they really weren't able to get into these deeper regions without affecting a whole lot of other brain in order to try to do that. And so really what's happened in the last year or so is that um, a key technology has matured, and that key technology is uh, transcranial-focused ultrasound. What that simply means is using ultrasound, which is literally just sound, um, you know, it's basically like very high-frequency sound, way above most people's ability to hear it, although um, if you're young enough, and you have young enough ears and we put the transducer on your head generally speaking you can hear it older people you know long since lost that capability it reminded me of years ago when i worked for i worked in television years ago and i was uh, standing with a chief engineer one of the chief engineers for sort of a regional nbc thing um and i was at the time like you know 17 or 18 and he just kept turning this tone generator up higher and higher and i could still hear these higher and higher frequencies and he was astounded, you know, because like 10 minutes before he'd ceased being able to hear these frequencies. And so it's sort of like that, you know, some people, right. most young people really can still hear a lot of these very high frequencies. Um, but the rest of us, you know, really can't. And so it just sounds like it's the silent thing that you're putting on, uh, you know, someone's head. But it's not. It's injecting a sound wave. It's basically injecting kind of a sound pressure wave in um, a very precise location in the brain um, using you know just some sort of fancy phase type array type things and so what that allows us to do for the first time really is to safely modulate brain activity anywhere in the brain and that of course means that we can hit those regions of interest that were identified between 2009 and 2011 in various labs all over the world involving people who experience what we call publicly fundamental well-being, it's a friendlier term than persistent non-symbolic experience. Um, And it goes, uh, I had to really sort of think of a good public term for it. For years, you know, we only talked to academic audiences and scientific audiences and stuff like that. and They're more comfortable with terms like PNSE. (laughs) But (laughs) your average person really isn't. So I just came out with uh, a book that I really have been writing for the last 10 years and refining for the last 10 years, and I had to pick a term this for the public. And so I picked uh, fundamental well-being. So that's usually what we're using these days.
1: Right. And so ultrasound can be combined with light to create a different state and so that we can move beyond pain. Is that right? Is that the sort of thing you can do is to help treat pain?
0: You can do all sorts of stuff with this. You're going to see literally thousands of therapeutic things coming out for ultrasound over the coming years and many of those are already in the pipeline with the FDA uh, to get approved in the US medical system. They're talking about you know, things for pain, things for epilepsy, things for Parkinson's. Uh, there's a guy at UCLA that's waking people up out of comas. There's just all sorts of stuff. Basically, the brain is the seat of a huge number of problems, right? And so if you can just sort of directly reach in, you're going to see addiction stuff probably being cured by this. There's all sorts of things that have been verified in animal models, you know, on rats and mice and monkeys and rabbits and goats and, you know, whatever else, right? Uh, Pigs. Um, So there are all sorts of animal brains that have been used um, to you know, experiment on over the years for a massive variety of conditions, um, and it, the the hitch has been that it's just been impossible to get at those in a human brain in a non-invasive way. Also, in an animal brain in a non-invasive way, course you don't have to worry about that in animal research, right? Because you can just kill the animal and then uh, whatever else, or you can just drill holes in its skull and shove electrodes in there to your heart's content, or you know, whatever else, right? Uh, but you can't really do that with people <laughs> very easily. And so this is the first time, really, that you're able to reach all of these different areas using a non-invasive brain technology. You don't have to, it's just, you know, you're sticking a speaker, basically, on the outside of somebody's skull and using some sophisticated waveforms and targeting very precise regions in the brain because of that. and and modulating brain activity in very specific ways as a result of that and it's really quite incredible. The light technology that you're talking about is different from that. It's also something that we're experimenting with from a higher states of consciousness standpoint, but it's being experimented with a lot less. It's probably going to have a lot less impact from a medical standpoint. You may very well see some benefits that are going to become more publicly known soon around things like Alzheimer's and traumatic brain injury, and things like that, because um, you know there are certain what are called therapeutic windows you know, for frequencies. And what they mean by that is just simply, in the case of light, there are some windows of frequency, there's some ranges of frequency that you can get through somebody's skin, muscle, skull, and then into the brain. You know, it's just not blocked. Basically, and mm-hmm. so by using those, there it's not blocked much anyway, right? It's blocked less. You can still get some in there. Um, and our people, I think, are surprised to learn that that our you know skin, muscle, skull—they're all permeable to light in different ways. And so there is always sort of light going into the brain. You go for a walk out in the sunlight; it's a nice spectrum of light. You know, some of that light is going to get into your brain, for instance. And so. But not that much of it, in all fairness. And so one of the things that we're also experimenting with are these light-based headsets where we're using um, high-intensity LEDs, basically. And we're activating different regions of the brain with different frequencies. And we're seeing, you know, what that does in terms of its effects, people's states of consciousness. We, and we're finding that some people are more sensitive to that than others, which has actually proven very useful from an ultrasound standpoint, because it seems like if you're sensitive to the light, you're probably a very good candidate for having your state of consciousness altered by ultrasound. And if you're less sensitive to the light, then you're probably a less good candidate for the ultrasound technology. But also the light itself is, is capable of, you know, modulating brain activity in, in very powerful ways. So it's an exciting time. It's less precise. You know, you can't hit the specific regions in the brain like you can with ultrasound. You can't get way, way in there and target anywhere in the brain very precisely to modulate it up or down or whatever else with light. Light's a different mechanism. In that standpoint.
1: I want to talk with you, Dr. Martin, about Abraham Maslow's theory of human needs and quite well known about his theory of needs, his hierarchy of needs. But when he was near the end of his life, he discovered another need that not everybody knows about. And it was called, well, he called it, Plateau experience. Can you elaborate on that for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Abraham Maslow, incidentally, never made his famous pyramid.
1: Oh, he didn't (laughs) make that. Someone else made the pyramid. Oh, really? I didn't know that.
0: (laughs) Which is kind of amazing. So I think there's often an overly simple view of Maslow and his work because that pyramid was stuck into, I want to say, the management literature by someone, and it became, you know, a very, very famous figure, like everyone everywhere around the world, you've had any level of education, you know, has at some point encountered Maslow's hierarchy of needs in this pyramid form. But he actually didn't put it as simply as that pyramid suggests. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, you need your safety needs met before your belonging needs and, you know, all of that. It wasn't that simple. To him, it was like, here are needs that need to be met. You know, they can be met at varying degrees, but it wasn't like these have to be fully met before the next are fully met, and the next are fully met, and so on and so forth. Uh, But it is the case that he did have um, sort of these things leading to what what he called a self-actualized person or self-actualization, which is what you see generally represented at the top of that pyramid of needs. And in that sense, it's an accurate representation. Of his view, and if you if you dig into his work and you and you see what self actualization actually means, it means um, sort of the highest potential that you can achieve as an individual. So it's sort of the highest degree of individuation that you can achieve as a human being. Sort of the most, you know, advanced, capable, well-rounded, you know, all of that type of stuff. Well, there was. You know, he came to see it in the last couple of years of his life that that he'd kind of made a mistake there, and he'd he'd confounded a couple of things that he shouldn't have confounded. So, for instance, at that highest level, if you were a self-actualized person, there were kind of two categories of them. And one category of them experienced these peak experiences, these self-transcending experiences. You could think of it as like a temporary mystical experience, or there are all kinds of different ways that he defined these. But that's an okay way of thinking about it, just like a a sort of a mystical experience was a good example of a peak experience. And then there were people who were self-actualized who didn't have those types of experience. And he just sort of stuck them all in the same category, right? which is kind of problematic from a scientific theory uh, perspective. And then in the last couple of years of his life, he started to have really serious health problems. He had heart difficulties he had a heart attack, and you know, almost died, and he couldn't really do much. Most of his heart function was gone. He was still the head of the American Psychological Association at that point, so he was still basically the chief psychological researcher and clinician, you know, person in the U.S. So very prestigious, very highly regarded, but not really able to push his ideas and push his concepts out there like he had been in previous years because you know, he was just struggling to stay alive, really. He was doing a lot of work, a lot of great theoretical work. There's a lot of amazing stuff in his journals. What happened as a result of that heart attack, that that really one of his major heart attacks was that he wound up transitioning to the type of stuff that we study. So I would have said that he wound up transitioning to fundamental well-being. He used a different term for it, he used the high plateau experience. I think he was trying to keep with his peak experience metaphor and sort of his mountainish sort of you know metaphor that he'd used for decades. Right. And if you, right. you know ask, you have to ask yourself, well, sort of, what's up there? Uh, well, there are high plateaus, <laughs> yes. you know, yes. up there. And so yeah. he used this term called the high plateau experience. And what he was really referring to was persistent. Really, he would have said persistent, and he did in fact directly say persistent mystical experience. He called it you know, what it looks like if the mystical experience really takes hold. Stanley Krippner, who is, you know, probably maybe the world's greatest living transpersonal and humanistic and many other uh, psychologists, a guy who's highly decorated by the APA and pretty much every other psychology uh, body out there. Um, When he was a young assistant professor, Dan just happened to be on a panel with Maslow before he died. And Maslow was giving his own personal account of all of this, which he'd never done in writing, and there was no other record of. And Stan knew this, of course, and so he, you know, pried like what little money he had as a broke assistant professor back then out of his pocket and paid to have that panel session transcribed and put into an academic journal. So we actually have the only record in Maslow's own words. Thank you know, thank God for Stan, or that would have been lost forever. Um, of his um, sort of reconfiguration, if you will, of his own theory uh, and his realization that, you know, he had really sort of confounded inappropriately this top level of self-actualization and that you have people that, you know, then start to experience these temporary forms of it. And whether they've experienced those temporary forms of it or not, you can still transition uh, persistently into this other really amazing way of experiencing the world he called it in his own words experiencing the miraculous and the mundane at the same time and he used sort of very powerful in a way flowery language like this to describe his his own experience you know he called it the it was the mystic it was like the mystical experience really took hold you know the thing that you see in the lives of the great saints where you can you know you you're experiencing you know, the world in a very different way, and yet you're still able to run a grocery store, you know, with no problem. Very different than the peak experiences that he spent so much of his life researching and talking about, which have high arousal. You're often unable to really function meaningfully in the world when you're having a peak experience. And so, very, very different. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating.
1: It is fascinating. Yeah, it truly is. Well, I'm fascinated in your work. I want to ask you about meditation, about your opinions about meditation. Do you meditate in your life?
0: Yes, I meditate. Not regularly anymore.
1: And what form did that take? I I was
0: meditating actually just before this, ironically, just before this podcast. I was supposed to have another podcast just before this. And uh, that guy had a family emergency or something, and I was kind of tired. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to go back, lay down, meditate for a little bit. So yeah, I still do it.
1: And do you use TM?
0: Uh, No, not very much. What we found regarding meditation was actually one of our most important findings. And that is that you really have to find your meditation fit. And so when we look at our thousands of research subjects that have successfully transitioned to fundamental well-being through effort, not through, you know, some get there from like severe depression... Some get there just through some random happenstance. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the category of our population that are actually trying to reach it in some way, ordinarily they're trying to reach it with meditation. And uh, when we went back and analyzed that, what we wound up discovering was that there's a tremendous difference, it seems, in the, the utility, if you will, or the effectiveness of various forms of meditation. And so you have some forms of meditation that are like, You know, way, way better to try to use than other forms of meditation. But even if you had a list of all of the best forms of meditation, another very interesting thing was that these people would have tried many of them. And yet, you know, for one person, like one thing worked and for another person, another thing worked and for another person, a third thing worked and and so on. And so there was clearly um, sort of a, a science to this. You know, on one level, it was important to have a list of the best stuff and to basically be using that. On another level, you had to then find your fit within those methods, and there's a whole methodology sort of around how to do that. I mean, you really need to, for instance, meditate for at least an hour a day uh, for at least a week, um, somewhere between one week and two weeks, but a week is usually enough if you're doing, a med- if you're doing an hour a day, uh, to be able to determine if a method is really good for you, is appropriate for you or not. And if you find the method that is good for you, that is appropriate for you, you can really transition to fundamental well-being very rapidly. I mean, within a week, you know, we have people in our experiments that transition on the first day or two, because it just so happens that the first method that we give them is the one that is actually aligned to them. And so, you know, if you, once you get the key in the lock, it doesn't take much time, you know, to turn the key and to open the door. And so, um, But, you know, conversely, we have people that don't transition until the end of our, our protocol because, it, you know, their they're key, they, they, you know, they tried key after key after key after key over the course of our experimental protocols. Um, and it wasn't until the last one that was the key in their lock. And so that really is, you know, the most important thing to realize about meditation is that it's a trial and error game. You do not want to believe anyone who says they have the only or best or whatever meditation. There's no such thing as that. You don't want to believe, uh, you don't want to fall into a trap of using a meditation for longer than you should. I mean, if, it's, if you're doing it for an hour a day and you've been doing it for a couple of weeks and you're not seeing substantial you know, changes, you need to get rid of that method and move on to something else no matter what someone is telling you about that method. It's just not aligned with you. Now, that's not to say that if you keep doing that for 40 years, at some point in that 40 years, your psychology might not come into alignment with that method and you might have success with it. Uh, but on the other hand, you could just start looking through other methods and save yourself for 40 years of, you know, sitting down every day and doing that meditation for no really good reason. You know, it's we have a very different view on meditation um, than most people do. One thing people ask us is, do I have to do an hour a day? And, you know, More or less, the answer is yes. If you want to get to fundamental well-being, there is like a 45-minute, there's a 40 to 45-minute threshold after which sort of the real progress is made, even when you have matched up to your method. And if you're falling short of that, you just really can't expect to make that progress.
1: Right. I see. Well, you've done a lot of writing, and I know that one of your most recent books is The Finder's Book. Was it difficult for you to put that together? Did it take a lot of mindfulness for you to write that book?
0: It took an enormous amount of research to write that book. That's yes, I, did, you know, I wrote that book originally 2010, and it's 2019 now, and it's just come out. So hundreds of people have read that book over the years uh, that are in sort of this space that have mm-hmm. experienced fundamental well-being and commented on it and helped to refine it and you know, my own understanding of this has progressed a lot over those years. Well, I didn't want to. Um, I have a friend who maybe you've heard of named Ken Wilber. And one of the things that Ken did was he produced a lot of books over the years. And like you know, there's sort of people say you know, well, there's Ken Wilber one and Ken Wilber two and Ken Wilber three and Ken Wilber four and Ken Wilber five. There's sort of like his views evolved over the years. And I think it makes this body of work, this overall body of work, very challenging for people who are new to it, because they'll read one book from early on, and then they'll read another book from later on, and it seems to be very different, um, you know. And so I did not want to, I sort of learned from Ken, <laughs> you know, what I didn't want to have happen. I didn't want to put a book out, you know, nine years ago that I thought I would have to revise and then revise and then revise with other books. And potentially come up with something that was confusing. I really just wanted to wait until I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to be revising in any meaningful way what was in that book. And so that you know that was the tact that I took towards it. And because of that, you know, I had so many people um, reading it and reviewing it and commenting on it. Literally hundreds of people, maybe even a thousand people, uh, that have done that over the over the last ten years and then my own understanding through our own refinement of the research you know 10 years ago there were there were no there were no finders course experiments or anything like that or explorers course experiments or you know and now we were basically 10 years ago we were just coming off of the first phase of the research uh we had the you know really what held up i would have said the early neuroscience research uh, but that, the, all that r- early research held up. It's basically been consistent since then. So we basically had an understanding of what, going on, what was going on from a neuroscience standpoint. We had um, the sort of cross-cultural uh, model of the different types of fundamental well-being that was mapped out. Um, the data was quite solid, but what we hadn't yet done is conducted experiments that tried to measure pre- and post the transition to fundamental well-being. And a lot of really useful information and a lot of really useful refinements came from those experiments that we've conducted in the last five years or so. And so that really contributed significantly to helping us to clarify things in the book and make them much more understandable um, and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's even as our own work has gone along, um, you know, it's contributed significantly to making that book uh what it really is and so it felt it felt good to it felt good to finally get it out there um and you know i think it's gonna it's gonna be one of those books that stands the test of time i wanted to produce a book that was on the on the same caliber of um Stace's books uh from you know the 50s and 60s um he was really the scholar whose books formed the modern understanding of mysticism in the mainstream academy. Um, and so, you know, he didn't have a lot of papers, didn't, didn't do a lot of that. He really, you know, he really realized that, much like we do, that you really need the space of a book to really contextualize meaningfully the depth of what needs to be conveyed uh, from this data. And so he wrote a couple of really, really good books back in the day that really formed the basis of the study of modern mysticism. Ralph Hood created his you know, mysticism scale from that, Ralph Hood being you know, by far the leading academic in the world uh, in terms of pioneering the modern study of mysticism in the academy. Someone who was on my dissertation committee for my PhD. I wanted to create that level, that caliber of book that people could use moving forward, just like Stasis had been so instrumental.
1: I want to know if, as a scientist, you've ever felt bullied, because I know that this can be controversial, some of the work that you do, and if so, what elements of mindfulness would you have used to deal with that? <laughs>
0: That's a good question.: Yeah, we're attacked constantly, you know. Our experiments were attacked because we made them uh, crowd-sourced and crowdfunded because we wanted a bunch of ordinary people instead of a bunch of, you know, undergraduates. Uh, You know, the standard lab rats of psychological science are people taking Psych 101, which means that, you know, virtually every psychology experiment is done on 18-year-olds, right? You could ask yourself how relevant those findings really are to the rest of the population. And so we really wanted to do something very different. We wanted to reach into the population. We wanted to have it be a much more real thing. We wanted it embedded in their lives so we made it videos that they could watch, you know, and just... You know, not come to retreats. And uh, there are a lot of things that we put into our experimental designs. And all of that really just got us pounded from religious circles, uh, the Buddhist community, which believes that, you know, all enlightenment teachings should be free or whatever else. You know, they just accused us of trying to get rich off of this or whatever, which is really funny because it cost us a lot more to do it than uh, we brought in off of any of those fees and stuff. I think the course still owes me personally, probably right now as I'm sitting here somewhere between fifty and hundred thousand dollars uh, that I've just put in of my own money into those experiments and not gotten reimbursed yet. Um, and so and I haven't even I don't even know what that precise number is because it's an irrelevant number. There isn't money in the coffers to pay it back, right? So why I'm not gonna take time out of my day to add that up, you know, right. anytime soon. Uh, and so, yeah, there's been, a, there's been a lot of attacks like that leveled. And, you know, I think it's been interesting. What it's really communicated to me is, I think, more than anything, the unsuccessfulness of those systems. Um, because, at least in the modern era, I think they might have been very successful. And, in fact, we have a lot of data. There were some nuns, for instance, that one of our researchers ran across in Burma, in Myanmar where they were, you know, these were like 90-year-old nuns or whatever, and they remembered when they were young nuns, it was before TV and radio and stuff had really sort of come there, and it was sort of a different culture and a different mind and a different way that the mind worked, and, you know, they would talk about people coming to the meditation centers and transitioning within a week, and, you know, if it had been longer than a week, then, you know, they started to get personalized attention. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're okay. like, All right, this one's a little slow, you know, let's see what we can do to move it along. Right. And if it had been a month and they hadn't, you know, they hadn't transitioned to fundamental well-being yet, then they were like, okay, something's wrong here. And they just sort of assumed that the person was hiding out from the authorities and would call the authorities to check. And oftentimes <laughs> they were. Oh, um, really? And so, you know, there was within modern living memory. Um, in this case, sort of Theravada Buddhist, of Theravada Buddhist sect that had an extraordinary high, extraordinarily high success rate with its population. And these nuns talked about how that's basically dwindled to almost no success over the time that they've been nuns. And their view is that the minds of people have changed. They, become, they became more fragmented as various forms of media came in. Uh, culture changed. Um, and so, you know, I think when I look at these attacks on us, those attacks—it seems like to me—can only come from psychological suffering. When you read them, I mean, they're so hostile and so bitter and so mean. You just look at them and you feel sorry for these people, because they're, I'm like, wow, you're kind of stuck in a system that maybe worked 90 years ago in some of these cultures still. But how is this working for you now? If you can have this much anger and upset, and well, you know, your heart just sort of goes out to them. Uh, Right? And and for some reason, I think those systems, they just haven't really kind of kept up and adapted to the way mind has changed. That's the only thing that I can really assume, having data from those nuns that I think is credible and believable. I don't see any reason to think that those nuns were lying to our researchers or anything like that, right? And so... You know, so, yeah, it's, uh, it is it is something. And when we take, you know, hits to some degree within the Academy. But over the years, we've mostly won over our academic uh, critics. You can see that um, in the range of testimonials from the Academy uh, for the Finders book, right? Um, I mean, there's pretty much nobody that's left out um, in terms of their their, you know, praise for our work, if you will, at this point. But that's been hard fought. Over the last dozen or so years, you know, um, but, and that's the way it should be. You know, it should be like that from sure. within the scientific setting. You know, you should sure. it should be data, it should be proven, it should be, you know, sort of all of those things. In my own case, uh, because I transitioned to fundamental well-being a number of years ago during this project, um, you know, I don't think about mindfulness strategies so much because it's just like I'm always kind of mindful, probably as you would as you yeah. would describe it. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's just sort of a moment to moment thing uh, for me at this point.
1: And one of my listeners wanted me to ask you, do you consider yourself enlightened? Um, I don't know. It's a good question.
0: I think that's a difficult answer because there are so many definitions of a word like that. Right. I'd really have to talk to that listener and ask them what their specific phenomenological description is of that word would be, you know, one of the, I mean, uh, to keep with an example of Theravada Buddhism, uh, when we were making, when we were making a pass through Theravada Buddhists in America, uh, and through the major teachers and stuff like that, as one of the populations that we were researching in phase one of the study, you know, I would ask people that the great thing about Theravada Buddhism, is it has this great structure, right? And so there's like all of these different things like the arising and passing away and, um, you know this first path, second path, third path they, they have all these wonderful little milestones, if you will, <laughs> of progress, and so I would ask people I would ask teachers when we were when I was interviewing them about you know these were people who were in fundamental well being I was mostly researching their phenomenological state for fundamental well being but of course, they would put it in their own terms um, of you know first path, second path, third path, all that stuff right um, and so I would ask them, okay, well, what are the phenomenological markers of stream entry? Or what are the phenomenological markers of arising and passing away? Or, you know, help me to understand what the subjective experience is of these various terms that you're using. And what I learned really quickly was that there was almost no agreement on the phenomenological underpinnings of those terms so like one person's phenomenological set of items for like the arising and passing away would match another person's stream entry would match another person's something else or whatever and so it was it was it's really interesting right so when you asked me a term like well would you consider yourself X you know well in which person's phenomenological description of that because um, there is no broad agreement on, you know, any of these types of terms. And so, um, you know, maybe for a term like enlightenment, for instance, um, one person's version of it might be, you know, what we might consider one type of it. And another person's version might be another type of it. And I might be in type, you know, three, but that person might be referring to type four. And so my correct answer to them as they're meaning it you know, would be, no, I'm not enlightened as you would define it because I'm not currently in type four. I've been in type four. If you'd like, I can shift into type four and I can talk to you from that perspective. Um, But currently I'm in type three. And so as you would, but another person's description might be type three, right? And so then I would, then my answer would be yes, as you would define it, you know, phenomenologically as you mean it, then yes, in your sense, I would be enlightened. And so you really have to be very careful with these types of things.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. I can understand that. As, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Dr. Sure. Martin. So just 30 second answers are perfect. Who is one person who has influenced you as far as mindfulness is concerned?
0: I think the, the person who influenced me the most is the person who really got me thinking about this population for the study. And that was a guy named Dr. Bob Easton, uh, an old friend of mine. Um, and it was clear that he had had a profound shift in consciousness. Um, and he has a very colorful backstory. He's passed away now. But, uh, you know, my answer would be, so somebody nobody's ever heard of. You know, right. in, all, in all likelihood.
1: <laughs> right. How has mindfulness affected your emotions?
0: Well, the emotional changes depend on, on the type of, Fundamental well being you're in. And so initially, and, and this is not going to be a 30 second answer, I'm sorry. Initially, you know, it causes your negative emotions to drop off much more rapidly. Over time, it biases you much more to positive emotional experience, and, and you almost have almost no negative experiences. There are periods of just tremendous equanimity. There are periods of no emotion uh, whatsoever. It depends on the type. Of fundamental well being that you're in. And so I've experienced all of those different. There's one that is sort of like the end of the Christian mystical path, which we call location three. You can think of it as like type three in our taxonomy, uh, where it's like um, a common, where your emotionality is a combination of love and joy and um, compassion at, at the core. There can be some other things culturally that, that glob onto that and make that a more complicated emotion, but more or less that's it. Uh, and so I've experienced all these different types of emotional changes.
1: Okay. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Do you have comments on that?
0: Uh, just only personally, it just so happens that one of the most simple forms of meditation, just sort of watching your breath, is one of the things that is the most powerful for me personally, at least at this phase in my life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I use that quite, quite uh, frequently. I think one of the things that surprises people is how effective a method that is. Um, we actually open our Finder Scores experiments with that method, and you can—I can almost hear a collective groan when people, you know, log into the experiment to begin it because they think, "Oh my God, is it really going to be a bunch of super simple methods um, like this?" But when you've talked to a bunch of people like I have, who are in fundamental well-being and even very advanced places in fundamental well-being. Uh, what you learn is that um this technique is something. Just watching your breath, literally, just watching your breath, not not affecting it in any way, but just watching it, has taken many people to very far places in persistent forms of fundamental well-being. And so, what I think is regarded publicly as sort of a joke of a method, if you will, or the lightest weight, simplest, um, most you know, least effective, least impactful type of method. Our data actually says it's it's the opposite of that.
1: Right. Yeah, it's good to hear that from you. Well, your book The Finder's Book is available at the findersbook.com and I just wondered if there are any Amazon other books book Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, Amazon bookstores, yeah, <laughs> different, all over the place, but you know, you can go directly to that website. But uh, do you have any other books that you would recommend? Is there another book you would recommend to our listeners on the topic of of mindfulness or or consciousness? I think it really depends
0: on what someone's into. Sure. Another person's work that I recommend that I think everybody should be familiar with, and I'm not sure if she's written a book or released it yet. I'd have to look into that. Uh, but that's Willoughby Britton's work. I don't know if you've had her on the podcast yet. I uh, haven't. No. She's a she's a professor at Brown University these days, and um, she basically is the only person that I know of who's really deeply, meaningfully studying adverse effects of meditation. Um. And so I think anyone who's meditating should be familiar with her work and her research, because at some point, if you keep going, you're probably going to hit something that, is, that, is, that has an adverse impact, you know, in some way. Um, and so she's a very important person sort of to know about in this space if you're, if you're a practitioner. Um, beyond that, you know I mean I hear that, you know i 've got a lot of friends uh, who are teachers or have written books and and stuff like that. I know that there are a lot of very impactful books out there. One of the ones that i 've been impressed by the impact that it seems to be having in people 's lives is um, a friend of mine john yates 's book um, He goes by uh, Chiladasa, i think is is his teaching name um, i can 't actually think of the title of his book in this moment off the top of my head, maybe you know it but um but I think his book is, it's impressive to me in the degree of impact that it is producing in the people who are reading that book. He's a retired neuroscientist, a really amazing human being. And
1: is so, that the book, The Mind Illuminated?
0: That's it. Yeah, The Mind Illuminated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you. The Mind Illuminated, John Yates. Yes. Yeah, okay, God. I'll put that in our show notes. Yeah. So, no, I haven't read that book.
0: It's a, it's a gem.
1: Oh well i'll have to i and i that. say
0: that i've actually i only skimmed it myself um but there are just i mean I just get so much feedback about that book, and you know, I have to consider the people that I'm talking to are the people that are successful with meditation <laughs>
1: right? right of course yeah so
0: that's a pretty it's a pretty impressive filter
1: right, and it's a relatively new book it was just written in twenty seventeen yeah. 2017. yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks for recommending that book. And, you know, it's been great to have you on the show, Dr. Martin. I really appreciate it. And, you know, your work is definitely going to make a huge difference and already has. So uh, thank you so much again. And I, I urge my listeners to check out The Finder's book. And uh, thank you again. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great honor. Terrific. Thank you. Bye now. Remember what I mentioned at the top of the show the release your overwhelm guided meditation for $4.99. Abandon your inner blocks, surrender your stress, and become more focused with the calming sound of the waves and reminders about how you can release your blocks that are holding you back, download this full-length 30-minute guided meditation at mindfulnessmode.com release. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.